Our text for this morning is Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 12 to 30. We're working our way through Philippians, and as you know, for those of you that worship at Redeemer regularly, what I like to do is give context. I don't like to jump in the middle of a text and just start reading it. So I'll usually open a sermon with some sort of an analogy to kind of create a bit of a picture so that I can segue into the context, and then when we read the text, we kind of got an idea of what's going on. Well, this morning, in Philippians 1, Paul's talking about a huge win-win. So I thought to myself, well, maybe, maybe I can think of a, of a time in my life when I was in a win-win situation. I was kind of racking my brain, and I couldn't really think of anything. And I thought, you know, there's, there's kind of, you know, your, your standard issue win-wins of, of services, you know, rendered and payment received, and that's a win-win. But I thought, you know, I, Paul is talking about a really striking win-win when we read this. The win-win Paul was talking about, it's a, it's a stratospheric win-win. So I thought, I've got to think of a, a time in my life, was I ever in a big win-win? I couldn't come up with anything. I, the, the best I could do was, this, this is a commentary on how I have not had win-wins, I guess. Uh, sometimes there's this tenderloin that goes on sale at Sobeys. Susan goes and gets it, brings it home. It's such a good cut of meat that when you cut it and into steaks and you go to barbecue it, it, you really can't get it wrong. If you get, if it's a little more than you would normally do it, it still tastes incredible. If it's a little underdone than you would normally do it, so, you know, and I thought, well, is that really a win-win? I mean, it is compared to barbecuing chicken, which isn't a win-win. Chicken is win-vomit or barbecue, you know, uh, bacon is like, is not a win-win either. You have to get it right. It's win-win-die, I think, with bacon. So, that was all I could come up with. I just, it's, it's pathetic. It's not a win-win at all. But when you come to this text, which we're about to read right now, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, the win-win that Paul describes is otherworldly. Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of um, those of my imprisonment that is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice, for I know that that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, then that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and I'll continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. All right. Now, as this passage opens, Paul says that being imprisoned for his faith has actually advanced the gospel. It's actually been a good thing. And as we unpack the sermon more this morning, as we unpack this text, we're going to see not only the power of God's grace at work in Paul's life, but how God intends to have the power of his grace at work in our life. So kids, if you look down at your outline this morning, I'm going to give you today's sermon in a sentence. It's this. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Now that is, does not strike our ears like a win-win whatsoever. That's not a win-win. You have to know something for that to be a win-win. And whatever it is that you think you know better be true, or that's not a win-win. That's a massive that's a massive win-lose. So Paul knows something. So he starts out in the first, first few verses, verse 15 through 17, and he describes that there's this vindictive ministry going on. The church isn't in a good situation. It's kind of divisive. There's people who are, there's rivalry, he says. There's people that are preaching Jesus, but they're not doing it out of a real desire for people to come to faith in Christ. They're actually trying to stick it to Paul. That's actually why they're doing it. He, he described uh, that they were motivated by um, this, this uh, you know, this uh, insincerity. So now that Paul's behind bars, this jealous motivation, this kind of narcissistic thing is like, hey, look over here. We preach grace too, only we're not suffering and in jail. So I guess there must be something wrong with that guy. Come follow us. This is what's happening. It's a real travesty. You know, and church history is riddled with these completely flawed people who have, you know, God's gracious, flawless message. And it's always been that way. And so here we have this rivalry going on, and Paul describes this narcissistic drive as selfish ambition. And they're not, they're not preaching out of sincerity at all. He says that point blank. They're trying to rub it in Paul's face. Let me ask you a question. When somebody is doing the right thing, but they're doing it to rub it in your face, maybe you've been at work and somebody is doing the right thing, acting the right way, saying the right words, but it's like everything they're doing, you know, is like it's, it's supposed to be a dagger in your heart. Or a family member that's passively, aggressively saying the right things, doing the right things, but it's like they're trying to stick it to you. We've all been in situations like that. What, do, what, what is our response in those moments? I'll tell you what it is. We are, and maybe I'm projecting, but I doubt it. We have a volcanic eruption like a grade 8 science project in, inside of us. It's, this thing just comes bubbling up. We just get so angry because we're like, your motives are wrong. It drives us crazy. What do we see here in Paul? It's a miracle of God's grace. It's a miracle working of God's grace. Because Paul response, Paul's response is, he's happy Christ is being preached. He says it. He's like, whether from pretense or from sincerity, whether they love in Jesus and want people to come to faith in Christ, or they're sticking it to me because I'm in jail, their motive is horrible, Christ is being preached. That's unbelievable. 
And maybe you're here and you're uh, familiar with the scriptures and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know what's going on. What happened to the fiery Paul from Galatians? What happened to that guy? Is he getting soft in his old age? Philippians was written three years before he died. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul was like a raving wolverine and he, uh, he addresses Peter publicly in front of everybody, right? He's like, don't bash other Christians. Paul was like, no, I got to bash this ridiculous message. So publicly, Paul gets in Peter's face. He's like, that's not the gospel. And here we are in Philippians and Paul's like, hey, Christ has preached. Is there a problem? Is, has Paul changed? No, not at all. You see, in, in Galatians, the gospel message was distorted. So Paul lost it. In Philippians, the pathetic messengers are distorted. Paul's good with it. Because the message was, was intact in Philippians. Paul doesn't say they messed up the gospel. They're getting the gospel right, but the messengers are a mess. And Paul's like, you know what, they're trying to stick it to me in, in, in jail here, but they're still preaching the goodness and the hope and the forgiveness of Christ for our sin and the re- resurrection, and I'm good with it. That's a miracle to me. That's amazing. But we learn something powerful here. Paul gives all of the praise, all of the glory, all of the power to the message. And he attributes no praise, no glory, no power to the messengers. Which, on the one hand, you go, aha, good. Because, you know, preachers can be crooked, and they can be. Preachers can be this and can be that. They are. Uh, the, the, the problem with the church today is the crazy preachers who can't, uh, couldn't agree with you more. But you're also a messenger. Whose church is this? It's not mine, it's Christ's. Who's the head of the church? Not me, Jesus. You gotta understand? I'm you. Some of you sing, some of you stack chairs, some of you put the, 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 the elements out. Some of you are teaching children. Some of you are behind the scenes serving on the board. Some of you teach in the kids' class. And I do this. Jesus is the head of the church. And so this, that he doesn't attribute any of the power of the gospel to the messenger, not just the guy in the pulpit, you, all of us messengers, this is very liberating truth. Because what it means is the power of salvation is not riding on your inept shoulders. It's not riding on your delivery. The power of salvation for men and women and students and kids to come to faith in Christ in this city is not hanging on you. It's not dependent on you. All of the power is in the message. These messengers were completely messed up. And you may look in the mirror and be like, well, I can't preach the gospel. I'm completely messed up. Well, join the party. It's the power of the message. And Paul says Christ is being preached and God will work through that and will move through that. And so... We see this. Then as as the text moves on, Paul repeats this theme of joy and suffering. He says, yes, I'm going to rejoice. And you're going to see it throughout Philippians, over and over and over throughout the Philippians. He's like rejoicing and suffering. This is a major theme in the book. And this is not blind, naive rejoicing. This is not, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Hey, how are you doing? Fantastic. Hey, how are you doing? After the church, hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Everything's good. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And it's not, and it's terrible, but just, hey. Paul's not doing that here. At all, that's not what's happening. It's not a denial of reality, and it's not pain-denying stoicism. Right? Being a Christian isn't like, you know, terrible things don't happen, but we don't weep about it. No, we weep about it. But there's this great pervasive joy we have in our sorrow, the hope of the gospel. So Paul's not faking it till he makes it here. What we find is that he has this unshakable confidence that God's purposes will triumph. In the end... So by God's grace, Paul expresses this unapologetic honesty about his hardship and refreshing joy in his hardship. That's your life, church. 
You can be unapologetically honest about the hardships you're dealing with, and you can have this pervasive sense of joy in the midst of the hardships that you're dealing with. That's the Christian life. We're not faking it until we make it. We're very honest about what's going on. But we don't get consumed by the sorrow. We don't get consumed by the trial, by the suffering. You've got to remember, Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. He's not writing this from a sunny Mediterranean beach. And so this teaches us something. Kids, if you look down at your notes, I've got it here. It's that the joy that's available to us by God's grace, it's not marginalized, it's not overcome, it's not snuffed out by trials. Because trials and suffering have a way of making us nearsighted. Like I said last week, it's like the ornament on the hood of the car. It's like we can just stare at that thing and be so consumed with it that it just blocks out everything else goes into our peripheral. The suffering and sorrow, the tragedy, the frustration in your lives, they can become so big that God's grace and hope is like a, a thing of the distance. And, and in those moments, when we, uh, when we forget to turn to God for his great grace, we, we're all turning to something. So when we are in our stress, our anxiety, our sorrow, our tragedy, we're going to turn to some Messiah. It's just that it's either the Messiah or it's a mini-Messiah. And you can pick your mini-Messiah, but they're all going to let you down. And so Paul has this incredible hope in the midst of his hardship. When The problem with these heart, hardship and sorrow in, in our life is that often it acts... Suffering has a way of being like colored glasses that thoroughly tint everything that we see. Suffering has a way of tinting the way we see ourselves, others, the world, the nature of God, even the existence of God. Suffering has a, have, has a way of making us question everything. That was, the, that, was the, that was the problem of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. There's a uh, famous uh, philosophical writer. His name is Dr. Anthony Flew. Many of you probably haven't heard of him. I hadn't heard of him uh, either until I, I uh, was reading some of the things that he wrote. Anthony Flew... Uh, was the most uh, published uh, writer of philosophy in the last hundred years. And his work influenced a lot of uh, those who were perpetrating, you know, an atheistic agenda. He greatly influenced uh, his whole thing, Anthony Flew. In 1950, he wrote an essay called Theology and Falsification. It's the most widely philosophical published essay in the last century. And it informed many atheists and, and fueled uh, the idea that there could be a God. And Anthony Flew said in chapter one of his book, that he wrote in 2007, because at the end of his life, by God's grace, he came to believe in God. And for 50 years, he was fighting and raging against the existence of God. He was the professor of philosophy at Oxford, so he's no intellectual slouch. And so he, um, Anthony Flew in chapter 1 of his book said, by grade 12, he was saying, there can't be a God that's all good and all powerful, because evil exists. And if this all-good, all-God, all-good, all-powerful God did exist, then he would surely do something about evil. But evil is here, therefore this all-good, all-powerful God you're talking about can't be. This was Anthony Flew's argument. He came to say he arrived there too quickly and ended up being insufficient. And what he realized and what we see and what Paul knew when he was writing this, this letter in the Philippian jail is that God is going to eradicate all evil, all suffering, all oppression. He absolutely is going to do that. But through the 66 books of the scripture, we look on them and reflect on them, and through 66 books, 40 authors, and millennia, for those things to come together uh, for us, we see that God is doing these things in three distinct acts. Kids, if you look down at your sermon notes, I've put the, you know, God's got three big acts. At the Bible, you can divide it up into these three big acts. They've got creation, that's act one. Redemption is act two. And restoration is act three. 
Anthony Flew and all of those who have an Epicurean philosophy of life that after, after you die, that's it, you just don't exist anymore because this good God couldn't exist because evil is. They all come to the conclusion that because we live in Act 2, there is no Act 3. And they don't believe in Act 1 anyway. So it's like, life is hard, there is suffering and sorrow, so there can't be a good God. But what the scriptures reveal is that Act 3 is coming. Recently we went and saw uh, The Quiet Place. I'm not going to do any spoilers for anybody so you can relax. But in Act 1, you come into a world that is in just utter conflict and chaos. You're like, you're asking, what is going on? And then in Act 2, that conflict and chaos becomes very apparent, and it crescendos to the point where everybody in the theater is just kind of holding their breath, like, how's this going to play out? And, you know, most people just check out of, of, of the idea of faith because we live in Act 2. But, you know, Act 3 is coming. The scriptures reveal that Act 3 is coming. Paul was writing, Paul was writing this letter in prison, death on the line, life and death stuff, with joy in his heart because he had a conviction that Act 3 was coming. None of us here are living a suffering-free life, and so there's something to be said for the power of the gospel in Act 3 that influenced the writings and the teachings of Paul because he knew that God was going to end all evil, all suffering and oppression. But the cross of Jesus Christ was God's gift so that he could end evil without ending us. The gospel is, for those of you who are new to church or new to the scriptures, the gospel is not live a great life so that God's happy with you in the end. The gospel is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we should be living, but none of us are. Nobody in this church is. Jesus Christ is our holiness. We desire to be holy, but if any of you happen to think that you in and of your nature are holy, Please see me after the sermon so I can do an exorcism and cast that lying devil out of you. I'm just kidding. Not really. None of us are. Christ is our holiness. And so it's because he is holy, we desire to live a life of holiness. That's why we live to the glory of our Savior and we hate our sin. We hate it. We turn from it. We, it, it, it over time, it nauseates us. That's just the work of grace. And so, and so because uh, that is true, and Paul knew this to be true, Paul had seen Act 3. On the Damascus Road, he saw the risen Christ. And so knowing that death was not the end, transformed and changed the way that Paul related to his suffering. It changes and transforms the way that we relate to our suffering. As this text moves on, and you get to verse 20, Paul starts talking about his hope and his expectation. And he's talking about his desire to honor Christ. And this word honor uh, in the Greek is megalunestatai. And that word in, means to magnify or to make obvious. So when Paul says that he wants to honor Christ, uh, he's saying he wants to make him obvious. He wants to make him obvious with his life. He wants to draw attention. That's what it means, to magnify, to draw attention. Three years ago when we planted this church, we were, we, we were driving home, and there was a train uh, over there on, on what is it, trying to cross over Lancaster or whatever, there's a train. So we went the other way, and as we, were, as we turned down Victoria, Susan looks out the window, and she sees this little coffee shop, a place called Smile Tiger. All of you have heard of it now, but it, was, it had only been open for about four days. And when Susan saw Smile Tiger, because finding little foodie places to eat is Susan's superpower, she looked over at that, and she said, that's going to be a good coffee shop, I've got to try that. So we went and tried it, loved it. After we went to Smile Tiger for the first time, Susan was like a Smile Tiger evangelist. She was like a Smile Tiger ambassador. And it's like, do you work for Smile Tiger? 
Are they, do you get a commission for every coffee you sell for that? Because when Susan, when, if you know my wife, when she gets about something, she's about it. And she wants to, to, to be true to this Greek word, word here, she wants to make it obvious, make it known, honor it. That's what Paul is saying. It's like, this is so good. This message of God's grace in Christ, his forgiveness in Christ, the reality of the resurrection, the reality that because I saw the risen Lord on the Damascus Road and I know that, this, that the story of your life doesn't end in a box in the ground, because that's true, I want to make that obvious. I mean, I want to honor that. I want to, that's what I want to live. That's what I want to wake up and live for. This is what Paul is saying. Saying that's a message worth that's a message worth sharing, that's a message worth getting in trouble for, that's a message worth losing my reputation for, that's a message worth going to prison for, that's a message worth dying for. That's what he says. That's what he gets here. And so he wants to make this passion of the grace of Jesus obvious. So he uses the phrase, I want to honor, but he says, I want to honor with my body. In other words, my life should practically reflect in a practical way the wonder of this grace. If all of your sin is forgiven, though you don't deserve it, and that's the gospel, then the natural conclusion of the work of that grace for you who are truly saved is to want to honor with your whole life, in every facet of your life, in every area of your life, honor that. All of us fail, all of us struggle, I get it. But the point is, there's something that was driving Paul that, that, that not only compelled him, he wasn't like, I want to be on my best behavior and impress God. It was deeper than that. It was this pervasive desire to live to the glory of the good news. And that's what we, that's what we get, that's what we see him kind of unpacking here. And so, obviously, those of us who are saved by grace would desire to have a life that is honoring to the Lord of grace. And at the same time, the life that we live is not the gospel. The life that we live is a result of the work of the gospel. And the reason I'm taking the time to distinguish that is because there's a very famous saying by St. Francis of Assisi that says, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. I understand his intent and it's a cute thought, but it's dead wrong because the gospel by its very definition is words. You can't say, well, I'm just sharing the gospel with the great life that I'm living and that's sharing the gospel. No, the gospel is words. The gospel is the good news, which is what's, animating the life that I'm living. Why am I making such a big deal about this? Because Paul says, I want to honor Jesus with my whole life, which means his whole, his whole life was obviously supposed to bring glory to God. But friends, where did Paul write this letter from? Prison. Why did he go to prison? Because he was living such a morally upright life? Did he go to prison because he was over there just living so differently from everybody else that the Romans marched over and said, hey, why are you standing over here? And we're all saying bad words, and you're not saying bad words. Please tell us why. That's not why he got thrown in jail. He didn't, sometimes we have this modern idea of sharing the gospel, like, hey, I'm just going to be like ethically great and live the Christian ethic, and that's the gospel. Friends, we have to be missional and practical in the city and bring the gospel to bear on how we run our businesses and how we are as employees in those businesses, on how we parent our children, love our children. The Christian ethic should influence everything that we do, and I'm the first one to say that I fail in doing that, so I'm not preaching down to you, I'm in it with you. But friends, the life that we're living is not the gospel. Paul didn't get thrown in jail because he was doing good work. He got thrown in jail because he opened his mouth. The gospel is the message, and he said, this message is worth getting into big trouble for. And that was, what, that was the way that he, he viewed his life. And so you get to verse 21, and this is the big win-win. 
This is the win. This is Paul's win-win. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says it's a win-win. I don't even know. Read the text again when you go home. I don't even know which one I'm going to choose. I just can't make up my mind which is better. If I die, I'm with Jesus and I'm awaiting a bodily resurrection. So somehow, mysteriously, I die and my spirit is with God at peace. But I don't just become a part of the universe and I'm not just stardust floating around. I'm not playing a harp for forever. I'm not floating around, you know, wearing diapers in an eternal singing service that never ends. You know, like worship leaders are like to say, this is going to be like heaven forever. Couldn't you just sing forever? And people are like, no, I couldn't. I don't want to go to heaven if that's all it is. Okay. So Paul says it's better for me to die and be with Christ in spirit, awaiting a bodily resurrection, the restoration of all things, that's better. But if I stay here, then I can minister and serve you, the church, in this world of suffering, and that's also good. This is Paul's win-win. I can't believe it. It's amazing. See, if you don't believe in the resurrection, maybe you're here and you're a naturalist, and you're like, listen, I appreciate um, you know, the, your passion there, preacher. You seem very excited what you're saying, but I happen to believe that this life is all there is, and there is nothing after, and you die, and it's over. Okay. So if you're a naturalist, and like, you know, Epicurus was like one of the ancient philosophers that came up with, with that philosophy, that idea that you, just, you cease to exist. Um, if that's true, and we're all just kind of like, hey, biding time here until, I mean, cosmically speaking, we have the life expectancy of fruit flies, right? And I'm not being morbid, this is just being rational. And so when somebody dies, I mean, to be... We can cry about it because, you know, maybe our genetic wiring was hardwired through a process of eons of evolution that caused us to be sad about that. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because one day the sun's going to burn out and we're not going to be here anyway. So you can keep recycling and doing all these nice things. But at the end of the day, it just, objectively speaking, doesn't matter. And I'm probably really ticking you off and you're probably really angry by me talking this way. I'm just, I'm, what I'm, the reason I'm saying this is I'm trying to show you the stark contrast between believing that this life you're living and whatever you're up to on Monday is all you've got versus the hope of the resurrection where God will eradicate all sorrow, restore all things, and then raise us from the dead to enjoy all the good things. See, that's what Paul knew, which is why this was a win-win for him. Because if there's no resurrection, then, then Paul's saying, hey, if I die, it's fine. Then he's a saddest, and he's, this is sick, and, and, and death isn't gain, it's loss. Death is the ultimate loss if there's no resurrection. But Paul says it's not loss, it's gain. So we don't look down at Paul and be like, wow, that's pretty dark. Are you sure you're not from the DC universe? We just look at that and go, he's not being dark at all. He's looking down at that and he's saying, you know what? This is a win-win. I've seen the third act. He's not looking for death. He's not nonchalant about death. That's why he wrote that in death, there's real sorrow for us. But we don't weep like those who have no hope. We don't weep at funerals like those who think, you know, my friend, my loved one, this person, it now ceases to exist. We don't weep that way. We weep because it's sorrow. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, seconds before he raised him, the text says Jesus wept. He didn't go, hi, don't worry about it. I'm going to raise him from the dead in a second anyways. Death doesn't matter. Jesus wept because he saw the gravity of sorrow of what it means to be a human on planet Earth. And he wept. But then he brought life from death. And Paul knew that to be true. And so Paul writes from this Roman prison. He says, this is a win-win for me. 
He was like a dead man walking. You couldn't kill Paul. He was like, I'm already dead. He had this insane, pervasive sense of joy that he carried with him through trial and through suffering in church. That's a joy that's available for us each and every day. And so from that, then he goes in verse 27, and he, and he concludes uh, this passage by saying, walk worthy of the gospel. Well, how do you walk, if, if the gospel by definition is grace, which it is, God's grace for us for our sin, and grace by definition in the Greek is charis, which is gift, which it is, if you've been given a gift, then why is Paul, and repeatedly through the New Testament, why are we called to walk worthy of a gift? If it's a gift, why do I have to walk worthy of it? We do have to walk worthy of it. Because the scriptures is God's law and God tells us to walk worthy of it. So, but how do we do this? How do we reconcile this? I'll tell you. You see, the religious idea of walking worthy is that hits your ear and some of you want to go into the fetal position and go, I knew it. I knew Paul was, you know, Paul was going to preach grace for a while and then he was going to, it was going to be the bait and switch. And it's, here it is, it's April 2018, roll your sleeves up, sole the bootstraps up, walk worthy. No. What does it mean? To walk in the Greek is a word, uh, politeoeste. And politeoeste in the Greek means to walk as a citizen. You're, you're walking as a particular citizen. Politeoeste. That's where we get it. Our English, you know, the, the politics and and the political idea of you're a citizen of a certain region and you walk according to the laws of that region. The laws of that region are governing a certain region. So Paul says, walk worthy of this gift that you've been given. What is he saying? I'm going to give you a picture of it. One third of the world drives on the left side of the road. Somewhere around 78 countries. They drive on the left. And if somebody comes to Canada, which basically everybody did, right, from one of the regions of the world, but let's say they come from a region of the world where they drive on the left, and they come here as an immigrant to start a life in Canada. We say to them, welcome to Canada. We drive on the right. I know where you came from, you drove on the left. I know it seems natural to drive on the left. I know that you can't conceive in your mind that it could possibly not be correct to drive on the left, but here we drive on the right. And I know that in your mind you've conjured up lots of reasons to justify why you should still be able to drive on the left. I mean, I want to enjoy all the benefits of Canada and I want to live under the, under the quote-unquote grace of being in Canada, but I would like to do that and drive on the left. Well, you can't because you have to walk worthy of being a Canadian, which means you live as a citizen of the country that's governed by the laws of the country. And here, we drive on the right. Let's flip the script. Last week, snowstorm. Can't even gather for church because we're snowed in our houses like, a, like the frozen chosen. And let's say that my, one of my relatives from Guyana, because my mom's side is from Guyana. So one of my relatives calls from Guyana and they, and they tell me that I have an inheritance and I have a house on the beach in Georgetown overlooking the Caribbean Sea. And I think, yes! And so I pick up my family and I say, guys, we're getting out of this frozen snowstorm in Canada and we're going to Georgetown, Guyana, where I have, a, I have an inheritance, I have a house on the beach overlooking the Caribbean Sea. And I get down there and I go to Guyana and my relatives are there in the house and they give me the key to the house and they say, oh my goodness, Paul, it's so good to see you. That's how all my relatives talk, by the way, on my mom's side. And they say to me, by the way, bye. We drive on the left. Now I have to drive on the left. I know I'm a Canadian. I've spent my whole life driving. You understand? To walk worthy 
is to be like, I've been brought into citizenship. By grace, I have been given a passport and a birth. I have been adopted as, as a child of God. And that gracious adoption came to me with a citizenship into the kingdom of God. And therefore, the law of God guides those who are children of God because we want to live worthy, congruent. It's simply saying live in congruency with your citizenship. So I can't go down to my beautiful house on, the, on the, the coast of Georgetown overlooking the Caribbean Sea and say, well, I'm going to enjoy this inheritance while I drive on the right. Because guess what will happen? Nothing good. Right? Bang! Accident after accident after accident. Trauma after trauma after trauma. The law of God does not save us. The law of God guides us. And those of us who have been saved by the grace of God desire to align ourselves to the law of God so that we can flourish and enjoy the goodness of God's grace and of what it means to be a citizen. And because Paul knows all of these things are true, and because he's just blown away by the, by the radicality of the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection, he says, now, if, because all that's true, let's live in congruency with our citizenship. Let's walk worthy of, our, of, of the grace of which we have been called. That's why he uses the, the phrase... Um, when you read the text, he says, suffering for Christ. We're to suffer for Christ, suffer for the gospel. It's a specific kind of suffering. The word suffer in the Greek is pascal, which is where we get our English word passion. So Paul is saying, walk in congruency with your citizenship and let the grace-driven passion reform you. You've been scandalously rescued apart from anything that you've done. And now you align yourself and allow the passion for Christ to reform you. So when he, Paul says, I'm suffering for Christ and you're all called to suffer, and so by extension, all of us here, the scriptures say are called to suffer, it's a specific kind of suffering. It doesn't mean you're all, car- you're all called to having these terrible hardships happen to you. Because being a human on planet Earth means hardships will happen to you. What it means is you're so driven by the goodness of the message. You're not afraid of the hardships or the circumstances that might come into your life as a result of standing up for that message, of proclaiming the message, of aligning your life in such a way that you're living in accordance to the message of God's great grace. It doesn't mean, well, we're all called to suffer, so have a nice afternoon, you know, and make sure that you sell all your possessions and live in paper bags and don't have anything nice and make sure all your food is bland and just sit still and slowly turn beige. That's not suffering for Jesus. That's, just like, that's not some sort of religious putting sackcloth and ashes on and saying, woe is me, my life is hard. It means I'm so passionate about the grace of Jesus Christ that his life, his life drives my life. And so therefore, if, if proclaiming the goodness of his grace and being bold to give a defense for why I believe what I believe gets me into hot water, I'm good with that. That's Paul. That's what he's getting at here. And by extension, that's what he's encouraging us to. It doesn't mean our circumstances will always be harsh. It means that our passion compels us to share the gospel, even if doing so results in circumstances that are harsh. The passion of Christ was to declare and demonstrate the good news of the gospel. The passion of Paul was to demonstrate and declare the good news of the gospel. And may God increase our passion and our boldness to declare and demonstrate the good news of the gospel. Paul wanted to magnify Christ, and what propelled the magnification was his satisfaction. So may God do a great work in our hearts, where we would find satisfaction in Christ, 
so that we would magnify the Lord of our grace. Because it's true to live as Christ and to die as King. Let's pray.